Hey, this is the moment. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Mary Gaucher. If you're looking to find her online, it's spelled G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R. But uh, we're going to pronounce it correctly right here uh, on the moment. So I, I, I reached out to Mary. We followed each other online for a while. But um, Mary, I reached out to you because your book just blew me the fuck away. Um, I've only read a few books about creativity that hit me with the same, um, I want to say mirepoix, but then I hope I can come up with three things. I want to say it for you, for your, for Louisiana, but, um, this combination of, um, both memoir and uh, spe- you know, spiritual work about about what it means to be an artist, but but also the, the practical utility of doing the work, and then the practical utility of how to get yourself to do the work. And I I think it's really hard to pull something like this off. And I got your book, and I I read it in an evening. I like just sat down and read the whole thing, and that's rare. So thank you for writing it. Wow. Thank you for the kind words. The, the book's called Saved by a Song, uh, and uh, it purports to be a book about songwriting. But to me, it's a book that belongs with The Artist's Way and with Steve Pressfield's uh, War of Art in, in that, uh, which I imagine, I don't know, have you read both of those books? Oh, they're, they're, they're so read. I need a new copy. Yeah, they're <laughs> Bibles around here because they're, they're um they're, they're highways the highway signs are, are in there how to do this and why to do this well yeah both both things and 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 it's funny you know you write saved by a song we we've all talked about artists who saved our our lives or or all of us who do similar things and and our, our the audience also i think talks about it but you, you mean it quite literally don't you for me yeah yeah, I got, um, I, I, uh, I don't even know where to start. I got sober uh, out of necessity, and uh, I needed something uh, to keep me sober. And I think that music and songs became purpose for me. Um, and wow, that was salvation. That was salvation. It still it remains um, uh, purposeful to me and it's bigger than me and it keeps giving uh, and asking of me it it, a lifetime's not enough to conquer this thing music and song is quite quite a mighty mountain well you know um you're a master and and it's funny when one hears a song like drag queens and limousines you know the the um the specificity of the way you write it, the, the the meter, the authority, right, with the way that the song is sung. I, it Those things, when you're on the receiving end of them, they feel like they were birthed in an instant and they were birthed perfectly. And what you do in your book is really break down in a granular way how far from the truth that is, uh, 
and how much work goes into this stuff. And I wonder when you started out, if the idea of that work, if somewhere in you, you knew that, and if that was, was daunting to you, uh, or if that was heartening to you that it could be chiseled away at. I had no idea when I picked up a guitar um, after I got sober in 1990, any of this. Um, I didn't know what I was supposed to be writing about, singing about. I didn't know uh, what I was supposed to sound like. I didn't even know, well, should I sound country? Should I sound folk? I was in Boston, but from Baton Rouge, should I do Cajun music? I mean, when you begin, you don't even have a clue of basic stuff. Uh, and I had to uncover it and discover it and find the way that I would sound and, and my areas of concern. So no, I, I didn't know how hard it would be to to write a good song. And I didn't know that I was getting into an art form that would just remain demand, relentlessly demanding uh, 32 years later. It, it, it's still well, hard. Well, you draw, it's funny because you draw this, or it's, it's kind of fascinating to me more than funny. Often people might think, because you do draw this distinction in the book and in your work, uh, just by the fact of it, between the music row, when, when music row songwriters talk about craft, and when you talk about craft, you're talking about different things in a way, I think. And I wonder if, if you might just talk a little bit about that, uh, because the per, you know, you talk about being a troubadour and, um, and that's very different than being a songwriter on Music Row. And uh, your songs have been covered in the way that some Music Row songwriters' songs are covered. Uh, but can you just sort of talk about what you're talking about when, when you're talking about a songwriter and a troubadour and the kind of craft you're talking about in, in relief to that kind of craft? Um, that's a good question. And um, um, although we're in the same... Uh, let's call it industry, we're in different worlds. Um, if you're assigned to a publishing deal on Music Row in Nashville, your job is to feed hits to the publisher so that they can monetize your songs. Um, and you're writing for a very specific small window, and that's called commercial radio. What will they play? Uh, and that is the concern, and that is where you throw your darts, uh, that's the little red circle in the middle. Will radio play it? Uh, for me, I just take the dartboard off the wall and throw it out the window. Um, I don't have a dartboard uh, in that way. Um, for me, what I'm trying to do is get to the truth. And nine times out of a ten, out of ten, it's the truth I didn't understand, or, or, or a truth that I wasn't able to articulate when I sat down to write. The songs are sage-like, and they teach me my truth. And it's mysterious because I know I'm writing them, but they're also in charge, uh, and it's a dance. Well, that discovery is, yeah. for anyone who writes, if those moments of discovery even if you have a plan, even if you have a title, so you have a title and a couple lines toward a chorus, or if I have the idea of what a scene is going to be because it leads to a certain place, if you're in the flow 
and you've kind of done the work internally to be ready, then the actual thing that happens on the page is maybe true to the spirit of what you set out to do, but you had, you do learn, you do find out things you didn't know you knew, or I find that out. I'll have a character start to talk with total authority over something I didn't realize I had any authority over. And does that must happen to you as well? It rings absolutely true. It resonates deeply with me. Um, a long time ago, I guess I was reading about writing and it said no discovery for the writer, no discovery for the reader. Now I'm sure that's true in film and it's definitely true in music and in my, my little part of the world where if I don't stumble on something astonishing that I discover in the writing, um, um, I, I am delivering what I already knew, which nine times out of 10, everybody else already knew that too. So what I'm doing is writing what I call cocktail party conversation. I'm skimming the surface and it's boring. It's not interesting. I got to go to what I don't know and try to figure it out. That's where the good songs are born. And how long did it take you though to realize that within that specificity of discovery, of personal theme, of some kind of connection to the undertow or whatever, as maybe Suzanne Vega would put it. Yeah. Um, though that that is what has the chance to resonate through because that is the opposite of what Music Row would tell you. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? How do you, but how'd you figure that out? Or what was the moment where in within the writing you realize, well, that's actually what they respond to, or that's actually where the connection can happen and I can form a genuine relationship with, with an audience that can become my audience. I think there wasn't a moment. It, it was like most things uh, in, in my life. It was a process um, of, of discovering that this is what's going to work. Uh, it, it is that uh, I had to, to write uh, my way into understanding that writing what I already know is probably not interesting uh, to me or to the audience. And so I had to, to, to learn as I went. Uh, and at some point I began to realize that what I'm struggling to understand, they're struggling to understand. And maybe it's my job to help us all understand. And that's might be what songs are for. Yes. I mean, I, I think that that's true. I was just thinking about, um, I was just thinking about when Hemingway talks about being stuck and uh, when he was young, he would go back to this idea of writing one true sentence. Mm. What, that can be misunderstood. One can misunderstand that to think that means one well understood thing, meaning the bland thing that we, but what, what I take that to mean is one true thing that just I know, right? Yeah. One true thing that I feel and then have the faith that that might hit off somebody else in a way that that creates a shared reality or a shared emotion. Absolutely. That's such a misunderstood, uh, heavily quoted sentence from Hemingway, right? One true sentence. Okay. Um, the Zoom squares are in color. Right. Are there yet? Like, no, right. that's not what he's talking about. Yes. 
he I think in art when someone says true certainly when I say true I'm not talking about facts facts have nothing to do with truth in yes. fact fiction is often the superhighway to truth so we're not talking facts fiction is welcome and uh, and useful we're talking about emotional truth something that resonates deeply that we all kind of knew but until the songwriter says it or the filmmaker uh, shoots it we didn't know we knew for sure yes and it's 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 marvelous when we all know for sure because some artist articulated it and as as you talk about and as shows up when you read i mean i love the fact that in your book you you put entire lyrics to certain songs and then you'll put the earlier version sometimes a couple times you do this um you know the bridge and i drink you you talk about the versions of it but various songs you you, you talk about mercy too you talk about the condensing process that happens uh, the clarity uh what you get by taking out a section what that gives you um and i related heavily to that in in, in my work but also i'm not sure you know this listeners of this podcast knows but i mean songwriting is like my main hobby it's the main thing that i do um to as a way to get at this stuff without the same stakes um and but it's been fascinating and um i haven't talked about this part so so much but i wrote something and it got cut by a really big artist i i wrote a, a lyric the artist took it put music to it what happened i thought there was i went through a period of and i do this now i do a lot of co-writes in nashville and i've i've had this experience of someone saying, yeah, that's right, but these guys won't sing about that. So we have to flip it. Like I was with someone and I was like, this idea occurred to me about a couple I know and their divorce and here's the thing. And he's like, yeah, uh, ain't gonna say that, you know, these guys don't wanna look, be looked at as people who've even got married. So we have to, and it was like, oh, wow, that's just not why I wanted to write the song at all. But that doesn't matter, right? So how, how does that, when you collaborate with people, because you do collaborate with people, and sometimes it's like, and I love the stuff you do with veterans of, of war and PTSD people, but, uh, and it's beautiful stuff in the book about that, but how do you manage collaborating with songwriters? You know what I mean? And, and aligning and finding the same spiritual space. Uh, again, a process I had to learn who I can write with and who I probably shouldn't spend time with because we sh sh we don't share the same uh, uh, purpose for writing. Uh, like I said, the, the the commercial writers in Nashville who are writing songs for the radio, that's their job. And there's a lot of them here that are very, very good at it. And they know that on uh, you know August 19th, 2021, here's what they will say on the radio and here's what they won't say on the radio. And if, you know, if you throw out a line that they won't say, they'll say something like, yeah, that dog ain't going to hunt around here. Right. So I don't work with writers that that's their job. Yeah. Or they'll say they don't know that word. They'll even say like, well, they don't know what that means. They won't know what that means. And, yeah. and, and I think about like, and then I'll always think about, well, fuck, man, I don't, you know, uh, I didn't know anything about engines when I heard Bruce's songs for the first time. Uh, no. I had no idea what any of that meant. I just knew it meant a lot to that guy. You, you know, I mean, even the first time I heard Tracy and, and she sang two weeks in a Virginia jail for my lover, 
there was nothing, I was a, so young, there was nothing I could understand about that other than- It was true. Yes, and, 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 and that it was a, you know, uh, it was a kind of love and a kind of an obsessive love that was worth a certain kind of sacrifice. And even though it was so far from my experience, I felt like we were brother and sister. Now the artist doesn't have to feel that about me. The artist may, right? But the work brought me there. So, so are you able to bring people around to that when you're collaborating with them? Are you able to get them there? Or do you just like go, well, uh, I'm gonna write off this afternoon and- Well, I don't get entangled with people whose job it is to write commercial music for country radio. That said, I've had a great bunch of co-writes with young Sam Williams, who's Hank Williams' uh, grandson. And he looks like his grandfather, his Hank Williams' son. He's a young man. Uh, he's 23 now. I started writing with him when he was uh, 19. And he told me straight away, I want to write the truth. I want to write like you. I want to write songs that like my grandfather. I just want to write emotional truth. I don't want to be on country radio if it means I have to, to, to turn myself into a pretzel to appease them. And so we were able to write together really well. And he just got a big record deal on Universal. And now they're trying to figure out what the hell to do with him because we didn't write radio songs. That's funny. But we wrote a song that captured Dolly Parton's imagination and he, she did a duet with him and that came out this week. It won't be on country. Thank you. It won't be on country radio, I don't think. But the fans will find it because it's that still exciting. Can I ask you a question? When when so to me, like if Dolly, I met her. I've met her a few times, and like um, you're in her presence. For me, anyway, I I really felt a lot about it. All is there to me coming off of her, Um, the genius you know, and all that stuff. But does it thrill you that Dolly liked the song years and wants to sing it? It's about as good as it gets. Okay, good. Uh, good. <laughs> it's yeah, super no, good. exciting to have my words coming out of her mouth is super exciting. And uh, it also is a vote of confidence that the highway that I'm on is a good road to be on. Um, and uh, I'm glad I've, I've stayed true to what it is I know that I'm good at. The thing is, the commercial writers who write successfully are really good at that. That is their strength. But I'm terrible in that arena. I can't do it. But I'm good over here uh, in the, um, I don't know what you'd call it, the, the far left lane. Uh, and uh, I'm able to, to hold space here. Uh, and every now and then I capture the zeitgeist and I get um, uh, the attention of people who appreciate what I've been able to articulate or what the song articulated. Absolutely. Uh, um, I've also noticed something you describe in the book, and I've noticed this in great writers in all a- disciplines. And, and with when I've written with like the best, you know, writers in, in whose songs I love in, in Nashville, which is um, they listen so closely to what you say and they're able to give back to you who you are. And you talk about doing that a bunch in the book, not, you know, with both with songwriters and with people who aren't songwriters, but like, for instance, you just said a good road to be on. Have you written that song yet? No, but it's a good road to, to be on, to, to, to notice that that's a good title. I just heard that and I was like, she <laughs> yeah. has to write that song because there you go, a good road to be on is, that's, you got to write that, I think. It's a good, it, it would fit. Um, 
Mm. Uh, but I have noticed that they they really listen. Did you have to train yourself to 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 do that too? Because you you describe being being there's so there's this amazing moment in Mary's book, and I come to this as a fan of her music. I uh, because I love songwriters and I've listened to Mary's music for a long time, but. I'd never even really thought about where drag queens and limousines came from. Um, uh, it was just kind of a song that's been there and and mattered a lot. And and um, it's one of those things where it's so specific and and personal. And it is like the way Dylan talks about song, the painting songs. It is, or like Hemingway talks about learning from Cezanne. It is like a painting. You know, it's a song that's like a painting. Uh, but you describe this moment of of hearing, you know, of what you noticed that night. And then someone saying that expression. Um, and you say in the book that you just like wrote the title down and put it in your pocket and went on with your night. Yep. I would not have the capacity. I would um, I would have to write a bunch more. I, I'd do that, but I would have to have like, did you not walk over to the side or go out? Like, did you just trust that your subconscious would work on it? Like, can you just talk through that process of, because you don't really then talk about writing that song that, that much. You talk about trusting that it didn't have to be linear, but you don't really go granularly into the actual writing of it. So you have that title, Mary. What what happens from there with that thing you wrote down? Such a good question. Well, I write down titles all the time, all the time. I'm writing down titles because that's my job. I needed. I generally like to start with a title because that gives the boat a steering wheel. But I didn't know what it meant. And I didn't know how I would flesh it out or how it would flesh out. I just knew that there was like something there for me. Um, I think that is what inspiration is. It comes in a slight electrical jolt and you go, mm, uh-huh. mm, good road to be on or drag queens and limousines. And it's all there, but you don't know what don't that know. means. Yes. Then yes. you have to go back with a giant slab of marble and a little hammer uh, and, and, and start getting David out of the marble. And it's one blow at a time. So I, I had a real cool feeling when someone said, this place ain't nothing but a bunch of drag queens and limousines. Like, that's cool. But I didn't know it was going to become a coming of age song and a nod to the struggle of gay and lesbian kids as they as they try to survive their childhood in the generation I grew up in, and probably still today in many ways. It was a nod to the outsiders uh, that made outsiders so cool that insiders want to be them. And I've had many an insider, at least perceived insider, tell me that that they really relate to the song. I didn't know any of that was going to happen when I heard the title, but I think maybe that kind of knew. And, and then we have to go back and, and figure out what we knew in an instant and almost and, like in that instant the whole thing appeared and yeah. then it's a rediscovery of it yeah exactly it appears and then it goes away it's an apparition it goes away yes it, it's gone you don't have any clue of it but that's what inspiration is i think a lot of people confuse inspiration as this moment of three hours in a chair uh painting a perfect uh japanese garden scene monet didn't work that way he painted these giant giant scenes on dozens of canvases to get to the one at the right time of day. Songwriting's like that, you know, it, it, it doesn't come in a, in a flash um, on the page and in the, in the music. It comes in a flash and then it goes, and then you have to go work to find out what, what rung the bell. Why did that sound cool? What, what's going on in there? 
And and then is that a days long? Pro so that's the other thing is, you know, this idea in Nashville and the kind of guitar and a song thing that uh, a song is a thing that's written in three hours. And what I loved in your book is a song can be something that's written in six months until it's done, as far oh, as you're concerned. Could be years. Right? Could be years. Yeah. I don't think that there's a game where whoever dies with the most songs wins. Right. I think that the rush to completion uh, can be uh, a real problem if you're trying to find truth. Truth comes slow. It, it doesn't just give itself away. It's relentlessly difficult, and you got to just keep trying to find it. It's a, it's a vision quest every time. And every time do you feel like, shit. I don't know how to do this. Yes. Like, and now that I've done it successfully, I feel like I can't write as good as Mary Gaucher. Right. Of course you do. I'm suddenly <laughs> intimidated by myself. I mean, this right. is a crazy feeling, but it's, yeah. I, well, yeah. I, you know, I had somebody say, let's write, I want to write a song like Mercy Now with you. I'm like, well, that's a, that's a crazy thing to say. If I that's could do that again, you think I'd want to write it with you? I would do it myself. It comes I mean, how many, times your, how many times is your father dying and your brother struggling? I mean, so like, you know, I mean, that song came from, and you're sitting, you know, that song came from yeah. real shit. Um, that came, yeah, that came from the buildup to war in Iraq and Afghanistan that I knew was a disaster and was adamantly opposed to. But also your and, dad losing his mind. And my same. dad gone completely off the rails and my brother going to jail all at the same time. Those kind of collisions. That's like, I remember Bob Dylan on 60 Minutes saying, look, man, I, I can't sit down and write Masters of War right now. Right. That was the end. And this comes out of where we are, I think, uh, collectively. We're trying to articulate something that's happening collectively as individuals we're in the collective experience it, there's a universal inside of all of us and i think that's what artists are trying to tap into well talk about that moment because you know i was uh i was 30 before i figured out how to be a writer i was too scared until i was 30 and I was too, um, I was, I was terrified of what if I try, you know, what if I tried to do this and I couldn't do it. And, um, and even though I'd been around artists, you know, and writers and spent so much time with them, I, I was convinced they were other, you know, I, I talk a lot about the Bob Dylan thing with my friend Seth Godin on here, because to me, it was, uh, Bob Dylan, it seemed like he couldn't be made of the same things that we're made of. Uh, it, I, and, and that you had to be made of what he, he was made of. And then I was able to finally make peace with, well, there are a lot of other people who write songs. And so maybe nobody, maybe Bob Dylan is a collection of atoms that happens once every thousand years, but you don't have to have that collection of atoms to find something to say and find a way to say it. But can you talk a bit about what happened when you saw and I saw Emily and Amy sing at CBGB before they went in to record their album. That guy Roger who signed them at Epic was there and Stipe came on stage and sang Kid Fears. And I was standing in the back of CBGB. It was, you know, three months before they went in to record or whatever. 
And I remember hearing those two voices together. And I, back then I became friendly with Kristen Hall. It was around them a lot. It was another great. I love Kristen. I write with her. I wrote, okay. I wrote her two days ago or three days ago. She wrote me to say, why have you not tried to get too long run and covered? It's like the greatest song. She wrote it, you know, 35 years ago. And it's still to me, like one of her very best songs, that song <laughs> too long running. I hope I'm not too She's far gone. So great. Oh yeah. I love that you write with Kristen. I didn't, I didn't know that you do. Oh yeah. She's a monster writer. Oh, I went down to Atlanta and since 92, I went down and hung out with her in Atlanta. Like I, I, she's the best. She was guitar teching for Emily and Amy, Amy back then. Right. And then yeah. somehow she started admitting that she wrote yeah. songs. Yeah, she was where you were when you were freaked out about being a writer. Yeah. She was there. We, I think that's part of the process. If you're not, if you're not freaked out, then, 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 then you probably don't have the, the respect for the art form. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to be a writer being freaked out oh, is part of the has, deal. Wait, have you and Kristen written anything that you've recorded? Yeah. I wrote uh, soft place to land with her. I must not have known that. I got to go. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. I really, uh, I do so much research, but somehow I, I missed that. Yeah. Okay. So in, can you talk about what happened for the audience? Uh, you know, it's very moving in the book and it's toward the beginning of the book and it's not, I, I'm trying to not give away all the great shit in the book, but I was so moved partially because I'd been in Pessim so many times and, um, you know, I went to Tufts and I would go see Tracy there all the time. And so, yeah. but can you, can you talk a little bit about what happened when you saw Indigo Girls, where you were in your life, how it made you feel, and then the experience of taking the chance of showing up in an open mic and, you know, just talk a bit about all this. Cause I think it'll help somebody as your book will, who's sitting there with these feelings too. Well, uh, the first time I heard Indigo Girls was on radio, WUMB, college uh, radio, folk radio, all folk radio. I think maybe it still is the only all folk station, uh, college station in the country. And uh, I wasn't sober yet. I was a mess. Uh, I was drinking alcoholically. I had a huge addiction to drugs. I was uh, in the restaurant business. I was spending 10, 12 hours a day in the kitchen on uh, just coming home covered in, oh man, just grease and kitchen debris in my hair and my chef coat. I just smelled like a kitchen for years on end and I was exhausted. I was overweight. I was bloated and uh, I was going down. I was hitting bottom uh, with drugs and alcohol and I wasn't happy at all. And those voices came on and the song I heard was Strange Fire. Uh, they hadn't um, put out the, uh, the, the, the record that had Closer to Fine, which made them stars. Uh, but the, something, I call it a personal Pompeii, opened up. Right. And it made me feel sick. Yes. It hurt. Yes. It did not feel like a victory lap. It was painful. Yeah. And I didn't understand it. And I ended up in tears and banging my head on the on the steering wheel of the truck I was driving. And I did hear the name of the songwriters, or the, the girls, the Indigo girls at the end of the song. I stayed till the end, I let myself just feel that pain. And I went in the house and, and got high and tried to bury that terrible feeling that I couldn't identify or name. Yeah, right, it, I was gonna say, it's important to know, you didn't know what that meant. You didn't know consciously uh, what I'm angry about is I'm not doing that. That wasn't conscious, right? No idea. It was absolutely buried like Pompeii. 
It had lava. It had 35 years of lava on top of it, and I had no idea why that hurt. Uh, it took quite a long time uh, to understand the pain I experienced. I think what happened was um, their voices blew through our culture and opened doors for a lot of people. That was their destiny. That was the power of what they did. And uh, I did an interview with Brandy Carlisle for the book, and she said, yeah, you know, it was the sound. There was something about that sound that, that made us all go, it's possible. It's possible. What's possible? I don't know. It's possible. It's the sound of a culture changing is what it is in retrospect. But personally to you at the time, it, it, was, a gauntlet, it was a gauntlet being thrown down, right? Uh, a challenge in it some way. It was so painful. I had not ever written a song or thought of myself as a songwriter. I was, my God, I was in the restaurant business. And you were successful in the restaurant business, I was right? successful uh, financially. That's what I'm saying. You had uh, restaurants yeah. you were opening. You were an in-demand person. And how, so how old were you then? I was in my 20s, late right. 20s, yeah. Late 20s. And you're, you, 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 although in the beginning of the book, it seems like you had never played guitar. You'd played guitar. You'd played songs for your family. But yeah. you weren't. But, but I'd not never been on stage. No, no, no. Mm -mm. And when you would play with your family, though, did, did you notice that when you would sing a song, even a John Prine song or whatever, that something different was happening to you? Would it well, be a I noticed that when I would play Sam Stone at a bar I right. drank yes. in in Baton Rouge out in the gravel parking lot on the back of that right. station you wagon, the tailgate, that. Yeah. That, you remember used to, the tailgates used to drop down and I'd sit on the tailgate and the big uh, biker guys who were home from Vietnam would say, play Sam Stone, Mary, play Sam Stone. And I'd play it and they'd get a tear in their eye and they'd pick me up, spin me around, put me back down and go inside, get drinks for everybody, come back out and say, play Sam Stone again. Right. <laughs> so I knew that if I was a John Prine jukebox in the parking lot, things would go pretty well. But I had no sense that I could write something like that. Not at all. And talk about what happened then. So you hear the song, you're working in the restaurant business, you're really fucked up, getting arrested from, and all that stuff. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's incredible, you know, your ex-girlfriend and her partner come and bail you out. But talk, you know, I was so moved hearing about you going and not being able to get it, well, getting up on stage and not being able to play the song. The fear, yeah, it, the fear, I mean, it's what Stephen Pressfield talks about so well, and Julia Cameron too, and you do in this book, Saved by a Song, the paralyzing fear of exposing the part of yourself that you know is the most beautiful part, but you're so scared that it might be ugly. Uh, and it's what paralyzes the, you know, people who want to do art, right? Uh, that terrifying fear. Please talk about the journey from hearing the song to getting yourself to that open mic and, and what all that felt like to you. Well, what happened was I got arrested not long after hearing the Indigo Girls and feeling that sick feeling in my stomach. I got arrested uh, for drunk driving. And so I got sober. Thank you to the Dorchester Municipal Court in uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. They sentenced me to six months of weekly AA meetings. Uh, which I took to, and I got sober. And fast forward two years or so, and a waitress at my restaurant was playing an open mic at Club Passim. 
and she invited me to go. My restaurant just happened to be next door to Berkeley College of Music, right. where there's so many, uh, you know, the, the musical instruments. I'm stepping over them every day in the restaurant. It's all musicians. And across the street, uh, uh, down and across the street from Symphony Hall. So I had classical musicians. I had all the kids at Berkeley, jazzers, and this young woman who worked for me, who was writing songs and playing them at the open mic. She brought me there. I had a come to Jesus moment. It just was like light bulb screwed in. It's like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I had in the interim had gone to see the Indigo Girls and experienced the exact same sick feeling, maybe worse. But this time I was sober. And something, I think, moved the ball up the field a little bit in my subconscious uh, to see, oh, my God, they are not going to appease the male gaze. That was important to me. They weren't playing to it, and they were great. Uh, and uh, uh, they they soared without selling themselves out. Uh, that was important yeah. to me. Uh, and uh, so when I went to the open mic with Christy, uh, it was just a, a hallelujah moment for me. It's like, I want to do this. I want to write a song and get on that stage. And that's how it began. And so a few months later, after pulling my guitar out, restringing it, and, uh, you know, working up calluses again, um, working on a song, working on a song. See, I was sober, and I had a lot of time on my hands. Right, sure. Oh, my yeah. God, when you first get sober, a day is like 150 years. Right. Like, oh, my God, how do people do days? It just goes on forever if you're right. not getting high. It's just the hardest <laughs> thing. And to get through a single day is quite an accomplishment, sober if you're an alcoholic like I was. So I had all this time, so I used the time that I had to to start writing. And I eventually got signed up for the open mic, got on stage, and freaked the hell out. Is that So is it true as you describe? You truly couldn't make yourself play a song? Couldn't do it. Well, I had... I plugged in the guitar Ugh. with a live chord, so it was an explosion. And so people grabbed their ears, and uh -huh. then I went, oh, and then I banged the guitar against the instrument mic, which was another loud explosion, and people went, oh, oh. So I'd already, like, punched the audience in the face twice, <laughs> which that's that's not good. I didn't have any understanding of how all that worked. I didn't know you are supposed to test the chord to see if okay. it was live. I had zero <laughs> stage experience. Yeah, of course. And the song that I had worked so hard on and felt like I knew had blown the hell out of you my head. For, you could barely remember the song, of course. All I could do was sit there in shame and humiliation and feel utterly naked uh, and want to run. And that's the experience. Uh, what got you I back, had. though? So what got you back there? So you go home <laughs> and now you go home and and are you beating yourself up? Mary? Oh, yeah. Like suicide, like maybe I should kill myself. <laughs> right. right. Well, well, there's a lot of, here's an interesting thing that I learned, and I, this didn't happen in a moment. Again, it was a process. But when I started to talk about my experience, I learned that, wow, alcoholics and addicts experience shame around their hopes and dreams. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane. That's how the disease starts to kill us is we, we, can, we can say dark shit, negative stuff. Uh, we can belittle ourselves, make light of our worth, but to say our hopes and dreams is impossible. And so when I tried to speak this in recovery, the words were very, very scary. And it took a long time. It took a real long time to, 
to say, yeah, the restaurant's working, but I want to write songs, which is the best I could do, knowing full well that I was going to have to sing them. But I never would say I want to sing them because my voice, the limitations of my voice. Did you not know you were a good singer? I still don't think I'm a good singer, I mean, but, but I'm you know audiences sing singer. a lot. But I mean, you know that your voice is pleasing to an audience. So you, I didn't know that then, and it kind of wasn't then, because I was trying so hard that uh, yeah. that when singers try real hard, what you see is the trying, and it gets in the way. Uh, once I got to a place where I just broke and said, "I'm going to do this whether I suck or not." That's when I started to get good. I, right, I got to do it. It doesn't matter. I just it doesn't matter do it. if I suck. I know I suck. Of course I suck. I haven't done this before. It's like going to the gym. Am I going to pick up the hundred pound barbell? No, I've got to start at the beginning. And so once I, I made that deal with myself, like, you know, you suck and this is not great, but you're going to get better if you do it and you're not going to get better if you don't. So you got to get through the suck. And that was what made me quit trying so hard in real time and that effort in my singing diminished and I was able to get into my body. And once you start singing from inside your body, I think almost anybody can sing. Yeah. Once you get, I, I agree with you. Once you um, get comfortable in your own skin, which of course is the, I mean, that's the, I mean, that is the other thing that's going on in your book and why your book resonates so heavy with me is it is the journey of a human being through this work and through the work on herself through forgiving herself forgiving her parents both biological and not enables herself to just be who she is in this bag of meat and is able to just be you know not every minute when none of us are but it is a battle for what it is to exhale and live just live with who you are try to get better try to be good all that stuff but just live in the body that you have and and be comfortable in the skin that you have and this book is an amazing for me an amazing journey that i think most artists have to go through because until you get to that place the work like you just said mary uh the work evinces the trying and it's sad right because we want to try because we want to put the best of ourselves forward, but the very act of trying can prevent the best of ourselves. Because trying, and you talk about this, we're not talking about craft, then this is a great distinction the book draws. You're, you're, once you've put the thing out there, you are using craft to make it the very best it can be, but not in a calculated way where you're trying to please the other, but where it's the craft is trying to serve the best of just who you are and what you are, right? Is that right? I don't want to miss it. Yeah. yeah, this is such a beautiful conversation and it's impossible to have with someone who's not an artist because I've been trying to do it for two months now talking about this book and we end up in a ditch. <laughs> so this is exciting to me because you get it. Here's what I'm saying. You're trying to get approval. You're trying yes. to get applause. You're trying the little broken Mary who was left at the orphanage in New Orleans is trying to get a family, to get love. And all that is so personified and magnified when you bring it to a stage that it gets in the way of connection, that yearning for approval. And so I think there has to be 
You have to go through that though. I think I had to go through it and then I had to break down and go, you know what? The person who needs to approve is me. Yeah. And once I believe in a song and know that I've done my very best, I don't have to oversing it. I don't have to try to make people like it. Wink, wink, nod, nod. I just have to be in my body and, and deliver it without affectation yeah. uh, with, with the voice I was given uh, and assume the audience, audience's intelligence. Yes. Oh, well, that's a, a huge thing. I was just thinking about people describe when Gandolfini would work on The Sopranos, how he needed to, before takes, do all sorts of uh, make noises and kind of ticks and do and and people I've seen journalists write about it and not understand the essential thing, which was he needed to get rid to me. This is my he needed to get rid of every part of himself that tried to civilize himself for the other, for the audience, for the expectation and eliminate it so that what's left is just the essential that didn't the unneedy essential. But yeah. where, where yeah. it gets so complicated is you look at someone like Garth who clearly needs it. Oh, yet yeah. you in other words but but still finds a way at the core of when he's creating to just create the thing to please himself. And cuz there's a part along the way for the superstars and it's what we all see where there is a neediness. Uh there is a hole that still needs to be filled. Um, that maybe John Prine didn't have, and Jason doesn't have it now. It, you know, Jason to me is the closest thing to John Prine is ball because he is just, uh, for me, a guy who's just making his thing, like whether they love it or they don't. But I think younger, he probably needed it. Before he got sober, there was that kind of need, and it was in the way. It was in um, the way, and he had it had to be destroyed in in spiritual growth. I think that neediness is of the ego, and it's right particularly damaging when your ego is sick. Uh, and that is the definition of addiction is sick ego. Um, and uh, ultimately spiritual uh, and soul sickness. But the ego is, is the danger zone. When I'm thinking about what you're thinking about me, I'm in trouble. Yeah, and Garth is not doing that. He Correct. needs it, but he ain't thinking about what you're thinking about him. He's in the song 1 million percent A million committed. percent. Yeah, a million percent. No, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, I'm a huge fan, which pe people are always surprised. But I'm a, a huge Garth fan because of what he gives back. Be, because um, of what he's giving back through his need, he figured out a way to channel that the that the solution for that neediness was to give all of himself, yep. without regard for how it looked, yep, to them, yep. to, to us, really. Um, but it's confusing, you know, you spend time, it's confusing. It's just sometimes as an artist, it's, con you know, well, there's, it can it's be. confusing. It can uh, be, but we know the difference between watching somebody try real hard and someone in the song. Oh yeah. Well, there's a million, you're, that's brilliant. Right. When we see Garth, the reason we're swept away is because he's legitimately swept away. His ego is married to the melody in the song. We don't see the yeah. king wearing the crown that's when things start to go wrong and oh, yeah. you start to become um uh, i don't know you do imitations of yourself at that level at a certain stage if you're not careful you're so right no you're 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 so right about this
you've clearly worked so hard continuously to be able to come back to yourself. And, and, and I'm wondering, is that what you get out of when you write with people who aren't really writers or when you write, when you are trying to tell a story that's not your story, whether it's one you've found, is that part of the discipline for you of trying to get out of what Mary needs uh, and serve? In, yeah, in you know, I think that that's a real gift that was given to me. Um, and uh, uh, it, it was given to me, I think, be because I did the work, working through so much uh, with music and song, uh, that I was ready to, uh, first of all, I understood the power there of transformation and redemption. Yes. Uh, if you go at it with those as priorities, in a, in a, in a, as a, as a, as you know, a trailblazer discoverer, you're going into a forest you don't know you're going to come out of sometimes. Um, and I've worked through so much that when I was asked to write with uh, uh, women and men who struggle with PTSD uh, because of uh, military uh, service, uh, war wounds, um, I knew the power of song could really help them. And so uh, the the ask when you write with veterans and I've been writing with doctors and nurses on the front lines of the COVID uh, 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 ICUs. Um, the, the ask is to take myself, Mary Gaucher, and, and leave the room. I don't know what it's like to be a soldier and I certainly don't know what it's like to be a doctor or a nurse uh, battling COVID uh, in, in a, a daily way over all these months and months and months. So all I do is put myself to the side and really start to listen and gently ask the questions that help them to feel safe and seen and heard. Melody helps with that. At a certain point, I'll grab the guitar and match what I'm hearing them say emotionally with a melody that pairs with that. Uh, and that can be a bit of a can opener that opens them up to another level of yes. vulnerability. Uh, and of course, vulnerability and courage are contagious, uh, just like hate and rage are contagious. Are, Vulnerability and courage are contagious. So if you get one veteran who's willing to move the ball, another one will go, okay, I'll, I'll do it too. And I'll, I'll speak of things that I know that I should not say. Because this is really what songs do best, is when you speak of things that you should not say. So songs yeah. are interesting when you go there. Talk um, about, um, so it's really fascinating as you know, you start the book by talking about I drank or it comes up soon enough. And you know, there you pair yourself with someone who is a, uh, uh, more experienced than you and understands song form. Mm -hmm. And of course now, you, now you're him. I mean, you're now, uh, you're now in the world in the role that, that, yes. that he was in with you. Yes. And, and that's that must how it be, works. It must be kind of an amazing when you now, is he still alive? Yeah. Oh, uh, which, uh, Crit Harmon? My yeah. first producer, yeah, he's still alive. Wait, no, who yeah. did you write I Drink with? Uh, Crit Harmon. Right. And do you still write with Crit? I, I have, yeah, yeah. And does, is the dynamic different now that you're it's very different. Yeah. accomplished figure? Yeah, it's different. Is it still fun? It's still fun, and he still has great ideas. He's a really good, uh, amazing producer. Uh, his, his strength, in my opinion, has always been helping people with their first uh, or second record. He's, he's great at helping uh, singer-songwriters find their sound and their voice. I, 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 I think that's true. I, I want to talk about a couple other things b before we're done that struck me in the book. One, 
There are two mysteries that are left mysterious in the book. And the one is who your dad is. So did you still never find your, the woman who was your biological mother, she left you no clues. Nope. And she won't tell me. And my birth certificate is sealed in perpetuity in the state of Louisiana. It's probably destroyed in Katrina anyway. And I am not, I've made the decision not to pursue it because she doesn't want to talk about it. And you didn't do 23andMe or any of the DNA stuff to see? You can't get the paternal side. Uh, the women can't get the paternal side. Oh, I didn't know that that was not yeah. possible. In that, I did in that do way. 23andMe. That was one. You didn't find any cousins out there so that you could track your way back. That that was one question. And the other is, it's funny, when, I, when, when, I, when you describe, and then I saw his name in your book, when you describe the songwriter who let you know what you were supposed to do, and he sang that song about walking under the water. And then, uh, so I searched all over the internet to try to find out who that was. And of course you wrote a song with that title, right? I grabbed that thing, yeah. yeah. But you've, and he never surfaced after your record came out and said like, hey man, that's my song. Cause I'm sure you would have like, I thought it was Daryl Scott the way you were describing him at first. Cause I knew Daryl in Boston in the eighties. Yeah, he and played with knew, John Lincoln Wright. I knew, what, say, say again? He played with John Lincoln Wright's band. And I, I knew Daryl like in 1985, 86. He was friends with my buddy, Ed Grower. They were in that, unfortunately, they were both, it took that journey in Mindspring for a minute before they freed themselves. But I met Daryl then, and I heard Uncle Lloyd in like 1987, and with my mind was blown, and everybody should listen to Uncle Lloyd if they've never oh, yeah. heard it. Both the way you described that guy singing, it sounded like Daryl, like this big guy who seemed like he belonged on a, did you ever find that guy who sang no, that song? No, I saw him once and once only. I don't know if he ever came back to the open mics. Do you think you invented him? No, he happened. But I certainly may have made him larger than life because but I you know he sang that. You know he sang that line that you then years later wrote a song. I about. know he sang, I'm going to walk in the water till my hat floats away while he was wearing a hat. I know that happened. The rest I may have... <laughs> of fictionalized but 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 then when it, you made a record with that line yeah he never that guy never surfaced and said like hey you saw me in a club no and I, you can't copyright a title so what of i course. did was was i used that uh, in the moment of despair trying to write through my adoption trauma yeah of course that, that, that's that's coming out of the foundling's mouth uh in a moment of absolute despair well, the foundling is some record that whole album is just uh i mean uh, um, incredible and uh when did you realize i asked a friend this the other day when did when did you realize i'm a writer like if someone said what do you do mary when when along your journey were you comfortable going i'm a singer songwriter i i this is what i do I think after I came to Nashville, this was a commitment. I, you know, I was bouncing around my open mics for a decade. Uh, a decade running. of open mics where, where would you start to at least get a few people who went, Hey, that's a really good song. Or where can yes. I get your cassette? Or yes. like you started getting some evidence that you weren't a crazy person, right? Yes. And I needed it. And we all need it because there's so many crazy people chasing the arts. Yes. Um, yes. I got nominated for a Boston music award, which was extremely validating. Uh, uh, best new artist. I was 37 years old or 36 years old. And I got uh, uh, the opportunity to play 
uh, at the Newport Folk Festival, which to me was massive. Massive, yeah, of course. Massive. And that's when I said, I'm going to Nashville. You can have the chef coat. You can have the jambalaya. You can have the keys to this joint. I'm out. I'm going to Nashville. I don't have time to stir another pot. And how long after that did I drink become a hit? Well, it really wasn't a hit. Well, for other, but I mean, when it started getting covered and people. Well, once I got here, I found uh, 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 a little sort of short-lived home at, at Harlan Howard Songs. Right. Yeah. And uh, Harlan's widow pitched it uh, and got Blake Shelton to cut it, uh, which was awesome because uh, uh, that was really validating to me. Uh, well, of course. And, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And so that's, you know, once I got here and started to find the business, um, but I, it was short lived for me. I don't have a publisher now. Uh, I don't I don't write enough songs that people I, well, I don't, you don't want to do that. Turning them out that you don't way. want to do the co. I mean, you could all these people. I mean, your status is such that all these people would write with you. You just don't want to. My guess is, you don't want to do the ten o'clock and two o'clock appointments and have to write a song in three hours every day. I don't want to write with somebody who's not interested in finding the truth. Right. Yeah. No. Of of course. Right. Uh, the, the, who tell the story of you getting gifted the guitar? Who gave you the guitar? Uh, yeah. see it. It's important to tell it now, I think. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And this is NCG on the 12th fret. Yeah. That's for Nancy Griffith, isn't it? Nancy Claire Griffith. Yeah. Talk um, about this incredibly beautiful tradition and what it meant to you to get that guitar. Oh, my God. I was new in Nashville. Ended up at Jim McGuire's house, which, which, uh, uh, used to be the hang for folks like Nancy Griffith and Rodney Crowell, Guy Clark, Lyle Lovett, Joe Ely, the the songwriter, songwriter Steve Earle, um, and uh, it turned into it was a photo shoot that turned into a song swap, and uh, I was invited because my publisher at the time, Melanie uh, Harlan Howard's widow, uh, had an invitation, so I went over there as a sidekick, but I had opened. A bunch of shows for Nancy, so I knew Nancy from that uh, West Coast tour. Yes, and um, I had a record deal, but I don't think these people knew who I was. And uh, uh, when the song swap was over, Nancy said, "Look, we got somebody here that should play a song. Mary, why don't you play a song?" And she handed me her guitar, and I had to play a song in front of these legends, and uh, I did, and it went okay. Um, you said they didn't know, burst out into applause, but you could tell that something shifted a little bit in the room. Look, a little smile from Guy Clark. Are you kidding me? That's better than a standing ovation at Radio City, man. A little yeah. smile is a big deal. The dude wasn't a big smiler. And a sort of a nod from, from, from uh, you know, Lyle. It was like, okay, man, I, I feel that I'm being accepted. Uh, and, uh, and when I went to hand her the guitar back, uh, she said, no, you keep it. I want you to have it. When I moved here to town, Harlan Howard gave me his guitar. And I feel it's only right that I give you my guitar. Because Harlan gave me his guitar thinking there probably weren't a whole lot of songs left in it for him. He needed to go get another one and chase songs with a new instrument. And I feel like I've written um, all the way through what this guitar is going to do for me. And I want you to have it. And so I asked her to sign it, and she did. What? What a, a stunningly gorgeous benediction that is, and what a, a, a welcome. And, uh, you know, I'm, 
I met I had Rodney on. I know Rodney and I know one another and I, I think the world of him. And Me uh, too. I had him on here a couple of weeks ago and we talked a bunch about his Nashville album, you know, uh the one for Guy and 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 uh and what you're describing, it sort of feels like what he describes at that party where he saw Willie Nelson in 72 or whatever, when he was walking through and, and almost threw up on Willie Nelson and the, ner the nervousness of having to play a song. In front and then, of, yeah. And, well, and it's making me, this is this amazing songwriter's tradition and why the kind of thing you do matters and is so encouraging and is the romance that it brings me to it over and over again. As you know, I think about Lyle playing Step Inside This House, which is, of course, a song about a guitar somebody gave guy and like this this legacy of uh what it means to be welcomed into that particular club which isn't necessarily a club that's a lucrative club compared to the other club down there but it's it's one that sort of says you are in pursuit of uncovering the human soul and uh yes and it's the club i wanted to be in more than any other club on earth isn't that beautiful? I, mean, isn't I know. That beautiful. That, I know. It's, it still makes me. I feel like Forrest Gump or something. Like I stepped I mean, in it. That I you got to in it. That you got to play a song to Guy, uh, to Guy Clark. I never got to shake his hand. I, 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 I his music meant so, so, so much to me. But, I ended up doing a bunch of tour dates with Guy. We had the same agent, Keith Case. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. the only thing I got to say about that is like, you know, unfortunately or fortunately for you, it was at the time of your life where you and Guy weren't going to be spending your time the same way off stage. You know, he was weird. He he wasn't the drunk you'd think he was. He would reach a point where he, he would just go, nope, enough. So he would binge drink and then nope. And the alcohol was in the green room and in the writer and he wouldn't touch it it would go untouched there'd be periods weeks. of time where he wouldn't touch it weeks I, have, have you seen without, has anyone shown you without getting killed or caught yet the new documentary i haven't seen it yet but i'm good yeah, you gotta someone ask um steve has ask steve earl he he's got links to it or i'll find a way to get you a link to it you'll freak out it's so beautiful and it really talks about susanna guy towns rodney it's a good companion in a way for your book um, I just want to figure out if there's anything else I, I wanted to make sure that you got to talk about before I ask you to play a song as we, as we go here. But I think we had a very good, mm. um, this for me means a lot to get to talk to you, but I can't tell you how much the book made me happy and, uh, feel, uh, alive and, and everything. Um, oh, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate your enthusiasm. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for, for sharing stories with me and, I mean, we're we're kind of in in a in a similar uh, sort of uh, journey that that you know we, we both start with zero and have to work our way to one. Yeah, I mean, I had time. I had loving look. I had two I had two loving parents, and I was raised in a different way. But that's the thing about like we our experiences in certain ways were so different. But the thing that ties people who want to do this work together is you have to actually do the work like you have to clear out the inner debris find the silent place and face the fact that it's terrifying but it's more terrifying to picture yourself at 75 having not really tried it's more terrifying if you really think about it if you didn't fill if you don't fill the page up today 
the page is going to be blank tomorrow and yes. all that stuff is yes that's it mortality yes. is the great motivator it, it it is because why uh why hide it okay last question thing by the way you said another title that's pretty good about guy you said uh a little smile and a nod so i'm just going to give that back to you too <laughs> you did say that coming from him was massive there's just something about that that's a good idea for you also but um uh what is the purpose of the troubadour in the world i just want to let you talk about that for a second you describe yourself as as that um and uh like my favorite song i've written is a song that lyle lyle's said he's going to sing it's called texas troubadours and it's about guy and towns and but you talk about troubadours in your book can you talk about mm. what it is about the troubadour uh that that title, that idea, that's so inspiring to you. Yeah, when I hear the word troubadour, I hear true. We sing the truth. And we're not going to dirty ourselves or shame ourselves by singing bullshit, which, of course, does not mean we don't uh, work in the arena of fiction. Of course, we use fiction, but we use it purposefully. We use it to get to truth. And I think the work of the troubadour is to connect us. There's empathy that happens when a song really connects yeah. and we become an, the other and uh, it helps us to feel not alone. And I think we desperately need that. And that's our job. And we do it at whatever level we're allowed to do it. It could be at the Bluebird Cafe. It could be at Bridgestone Arena. But that's where uh, the work gets done. And we accept wherever we are playing as the job in front of us. And we're here to tell stories that get you to something true. That's just perfect. Would you would you play Mercy for us? Uh, I've been thinking about this song and listening to it kind of nonstop as I was reading your book. And I just want the audience, if they don't know Mary Gaucher's music, I want them to just hear a song and so you can play us out. Uh, thank you. My father sure could use a little mercy now. The fruits of his labor falling right slowly on the ground. His work is almost over. Won't be long, he won't be around. I love my father, he could use some mercy now. And my brother, sure could use a little mercy now. He's a stranger to freedom, shackled to his fear and doubt. The pain that he lives in, it's almost more than living will allow. He could use 
some mercy now My church and my country They could use a little mercy now As they sink into a poison pit It's gonna take forever to climb out They carry the weight of the faithful who follow them down. I love my church and country. They could use some mercy now. Every living thing could use a little mercy now Only the hand of grace can end the race Towards another mushroom clay There's people in power Will do anything to keep their crown. I love life, life itself. Could use some mercy Wow. Hey, I got did when you uh Mary Gaucher, wow, that's I mean that's just so gorgeous. When you when you wrote that uh, did you know you'd uncorked one? Nope. No didn't idea. Feel, didn't feel any different? Nope. No idea. No when, idea. When did you know that that song was different? 
when I laid it on an audience and they went crazy. Oh, not until the moment you played it for like a real audience? Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, fuck. Well, this one's doing something. Yep. Oh, I love it. I love that. Well, um, that's so funny. That's uh, also the story on cocaine and, and rhinestones, I guess. Right. That's that's uh, Merle had no idea that Oki from Muskogee was uh, a hit. He said that's in that on that episode. They say he played it once in a thing and they went insane. And Merle was like, oh, my gosh, we got a hit. Wanted something here. You don't know. And you don't no, know. You, 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 aim, you aim for your, your target every time. And, and, you know, you don't bring it out unless you think you got there. But some of them have a lot more life in them than others. And yeah. And so, yeah, that's the song that uh, I think resonated uh, most widely so far of the songs I've written. Well, there are so many that are so great. Um, Mary Gaucher, thanks for doing this. People, you can find her on on Twitter. She's on the social medias. You can find me at Brian Koppelman or uh, you can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. And um, Mary, thank you for writing this book, Saved by a Song, uh, The Art and Healing Power of songwriting and um this book folks if you're listening if you bought the artist way because of me and you bought the war art because i told you to i really haven't done this very much over 300 and however many episodes of this podcast by mary's book it's going to uh it's going to help you mary gauche thank you thank you brian